0: Well, good morning, we doing all right? We are going to jump into, I'm just. I'm going to preface it this way, we're going to jump into a passage this morning, we're moving on in our study of 1 Timothy. So why are we looking at 1 Timothy? In 1 Timothy, Paul is writing instructions to, uh, Paul is writing to Timothy, this young leader, helping him understand what leadership in the church needs to look like, what his roles, responsibilities are as he shepherds the church forward without Paul's presence and potentially soon without Paul's life even being available. Available for consultation. Um, so, in this letter, we see Paul establishing some principles and values that are core to how the church is supposed to function. All of it, uh, if, you, if you were to try and figure out any of the concepts that he's going to raise, it's all about does the church reflect the gospel? And um, so, this morning, we're jumping into the latter part of chapter two. This is one of the most complicated passages in the entire Bible. So we're just going to start there. The Greek at the end of 1 Timothy is some of the most confusing Greek that exists in the New Testament. There are books and books and scrolls written around the nuances of tiny little words in this passage. There are words in this passage that we argue over their meaning because they only appear once in the Bible and it's right here. And so we're trying to figure out what Paul is doing. So I just want to set this up and let you know, this is a challenging and contentious passage. So when I read it and you think, because that's what the scholarly world has been doing for the last 2,000 years. Um, There are lots of interpretations. What this message could have been is like a theology seminar. And we're just going to present all of the different uh, theories and theologies and interpretations that go in here. That didn't feel like the most constructive way to use the time and um, so we're going to frame it a little bit different but let me read you the passage so that you know what we're talking about um, and then we'll start to look at it in a little bit more depth so this is first timothy chapter two and we're starting in verse eight so remember renee's amazing message last week talking about the exhortation to prayer so first timothy chapter two starting in verse eight therefore i want the men everywhere to pray lifting up holy hands without anger or disputing I also want the women to dress modestly modestly, with decency and propriety, adorning themselves not with elaborate hairstyles or gold or pearls or expensive clothes, but with good deeds appropriate for women who profess to worship God. A woman should learn in quietness and full submission. I do not permit a woman to teach or to assume authority over a man. She must be quiet. For Adam was formed first, then Eve. And Adam was not the one deceived. It was the woman who was deceived and became a sinner. But women will be saved through childbearing if they continue in faith, love, and holiness with propriety. Clear? We're all happy. Makes perfect sense. One way this passage in the interpretation, one way we like to take this, he gives an instruction to men. So the men are to do this. He gives an instruction to the women. The women are to do that. Let me just raise some questions first of all, if that's the way this passage is supposed to be. Are women not to pray? Men pray with hands lifted up. No anger, not disputed. Does that mean the women in the church are not supposed to pray? Women dress modestly. Does that mean men can wear whatever the heck they want? Come to church in a mankini. Oh, shame on all you that know what that is. (laughs) Purify your eyes. Um, Are men not to dress modestly? Does it not matter? Do these instructions apply only to the women? Uh, Are men allowed to learn in a different way to women? Are we not intended to learn in quietness and submission? Is that something that only applies to women? Are men less easily deceived than women are? Is that a true statement? And if a woman doesn't have children, is she not saved? No, right? No. So there's some interesting questions. If we want to break these passages up and say, Paul is making it really clear. Men have one role and it's prayer. Women have one responsibility and it's how they dress. It's implying that these commands and instructions don't apply to all of us. So I'm going to tell you, all of these things apply to all of us, right? Women, you should be praying. Men, you should be caring about modesty and quietness and submission. We should all be guarding against the deception of the enemy. Back to chapter 1. Right, Guard your doctrine because we're all easily deceived and uh, men cannot be saved by having children, that is for sure. <laughs> so questions that get raised, I, I want to be honest and say there are these questions that we have as we come to passage like this and we've got to figure out what we're going to do with them. Paul, when he's writing, it's clear all the way through all of his epistles, Paul is addressing problems that exist in the church. Chapter 1, there are false teachers. We've got to address this problem of how you define and guard against the false doctrine that is there. Uh, Paul arguing, "I'm, I'm the worst of sinners. There's people out here that are arrogant, thinking they're better than other people. So we've got to address this. And I'm going to use myself as the example, I, Paul, I'm the worst of sinners. So with everything Paul is addressing, he's addressing specific problems that exists in the church. Alongside that, he's given universal truths, right? This is a trustworthy saying, Christ Jesus came into the world uh, to save sinners, these universal principles. But we've got this work to do to figure out what is a universal principle and what's something that's culturally addressing a problem that exists uh, to the people that he's writing to. So I want to look at the problems that he's addressing as he begins to talk to the men and the women. Because what happens in this passage is we tend to look at there's a problem with the women and so Paul is writing to address their problem and we forget the problem that he's addressing in the men that comes first. So firstly, the men. What is Paul telling the men to do? First of all, pray. And secondly, deal with your anger and the disputes that you are walking. So what's the instruction? Therefore, I want the men everywhere to pray, lifting up holy hands without anger or disputing. So what men tend to do is we get in our high horse and tell the women that they're supposed to dress a certain way, but we don't address that is addressed to us. And you'll see this a lot of the time. You go into Ephesians, Paul's going to say, men, love your wives as Christ loved the church, women, you're going to walk in this form of submission. So he's going to address both people uh, and and, and challenge the problems that both people are walking in. So at this point, men, are you praying? You heard the amazing message that Renee gave last week that starts with, I urge everyone everywhere to be praying and praying for all people. I think Paul has to raise this point. He's just given a great seven verse explanation of what prayer is for, the priority in, about it in the church. I don't think he would need to tell the men to pray if they were praying. I urge you to pray, gives this whole elaborate explanation, then goes, therefore, men, now that I've explained the priority of prayer, get praying. As men, it is our job to lead ourselves and our family in prayer in the presence of God. How are you doing, men, at being a man of prayer? If I asked your wife or your kids, if I asked people that are around you, would their primary description of you be, this person is a man of prayer, or would they define you by other words? Paul, as he's explaining to Timothy what he needs to establish in the church, he begins with, men get praying. But it's not just pray. There's some qualifiers to this. Lifting up holy hands. We could could go off here about the whole postures that we use when we're praying. You know, bow your head, clasp your hands together, let's pray. (laughs) Never described in scripture. I can't take you to a single verse that says, close your eyes and clasp your hands. I can point to lots of verses that say, lift your eyes up to heaven and raise your hands to the Father. Why, why do we teach this? Do you know why we teach it? Because we teach little kids to close their eyes and not fidget. Don't be distracted, don't fidget. And we heard it, right? There's nothing bad about it. It's a posture I adopt all the time when I'm praying. We could talk about postures. The the emphasis here is not lift up your hands because this is culturally normal for them. The, The issue here is what's the quality of the hands that you're lifting? Are these hands holy hands? What were your hands doing today? Have they done the things that honor God or have they done things that dishonor God? When you stand to pray, when you worship, are you coming with a heart that is pure, represented by holy hands? Are you coming marred and dirty, having done all sorts of things this week that dishonor God? He gives some qualifiers to this group of people about what those holy hands might look like. They give us hints at some of the problems that these men were having, lifting them up without anger or disputes. We'd read in chapter one, if you remember, That they're they're arguing over endless genealogies and myths and old wife's tales and they're they're fighting over doctrinal issues that aren't true and losing sight of the gospel. The challenge is when we come to this, are we coming in a posture of anger and resentment? How many of you sit here on a Sunday morning and something irks you? So we start worshiping. Sometimes it's worship. I don't like this song. So I'm just not going to sing And Jesus is like in the room expecting our worship and we allow our anger to defeat the very thing that he's asking us to do. Some of us get caught up in political discussion and diatribes. So someone makes a comment and you walk into the room like, I can't believe they said that this morning. Then you try and worship with anger and bitterness in your heart. Paul is addressing to the men. He's told them in verse one, prayer is the priority. So men, fix your anger issues. Fix your disputes and these issues that are there. Get your hands holy and from that posture pray. He's not saying this is only a thing for men. He's not saying men, prayer is restricted to men, women can't pray. He's saying men in this church, I notice these issues in you. So fix those issues so that you can pray effectively. The prayer of a righteous man is powerful and effective. So we make all of these prayers from these places of unholiness and anger and, and, and conflict and we expect God to answer and then we get fr- frustrated when he doesn't when God tells us that when we abide in him and his word abides in us we can ask what we want and it will be given. We know that the prayer of the righteous person is the one that is heard and answered so men in the church, are you people of prayer? And how are you doing with your anger and your issues of dispute and your pursuit of holiness? Are these the words that describe the way you pursue Jesus? And then women, you, well, you can be prayerless. You can be angry. You can be caught up in bitterness and disputes. Your hands can also be unholy. So how are you doing at being people of prayer who walk in the way of Jesus? When Paul addresses the women in Ephesus, he gives them these couple of instructions. One, dress modestly, and the second, learn humbly. So what are his words? I want the women to dress modestly with decency and propriety, adorning themselves, not with elaborate hairstyles or gold or pearls or expensive clothes, but with good deeds appropriate for women who profess to worship God. Clearly, there's an issue in the church. If the women in the church were coming in dressed modestly, it wouldn't be a problem, right? He wouldn't have to say this. So clearly, there's an issue with the women in the church that caused him to have to raise this question. And women should learn in quietness and full submission. Let me say this statement before we go and unpack this in more detail. I think for women, I'm not a woman, so I can't speak on your behalf. My understanding of this passage can come across really horrible to the ladies sitting in the room. One of the things about this passage is this is a culture where women weren't allowed to learn. There's an interesting part of this passage where Paul is saying, women, you have permission to learn. And not just learn, but in quietness. Can't do that when you have get six kids jumping all over you. <laughs> so there is some space here where Paul is instructing Timothy to make sure that the women have a space where they are free to learn. I think that's an important part that we miss when we see the negative of the passage. There is, there are two ways that we can uh, look at scripture very simply. One is you look at scripture and you take it at face value and you say, I'm just going to read it and what I understand it to say is what it means. And that's good and we want to be doing that as much as possible in scripture. There's another element to interpret in scripture that is what's the context that has been written to and how does that help us understand what the words are saying and what is being meant and if you start reading commentaries on any book of the Bible, they're trying to piece together what's the situation uh, that this book has been written to so that we can understand the culture and what Paul is saying. So there are some things in here, some cultural considerations that are really important to have in the back of our mind as a possibility when it comes to how we interpret this passage. So I want to look at some of these. So I'm, what I'm not saying is this is the right answer and these cultural considerations are the, the right things. Well, I want to I want to put them out there and I want to look at some of the culture and raise the question is this passage saying exactly what it looks like when we read it in English in 21st century America? Or is there stuff from the culture that may help us understand why Paul is saying the things that he is saying? So if you remember back to the introduction in week one, first of all, we talked about some of the background information about Ephesus. Ephesus. Ephesus was a religious center in what is modern-day Turkey, and there was a figurehead of the religion in Ephesus, and her name was Artemis. Uh, Artemis was, uh, is a Greek goddess, um, and, and she, uh, she was worshipped all over the Greco-Roman world, but she had a particular focus of attention here in Ephesus. So I want to remind you of Acts chapter 19. What happened in Acts chapter 19? as Paul was in Ephesus. About that time, there arose a great disturbance about the way. There's a little bit more information here. Demetrius is a silversmith. Um, Actually, let me pull up the full. I couldn't fit it all on the slide without making it tiny, so let me give you the whole thing. I don't want to paraphrase his words. About that time, there arose a great disturbance, by the way. A silversmith named Demetrius who made silver shrines of Artemis brought in no little business for the craftsmen. He called them together along with the workmen and related trades and said, men, you know we receive a good income from this business. And you see and hear how this fellow Paul has convinced and led astray large numbers of people here in Ephesus and in practically the whole province of Asia. He says that man-made gods are no gods at all. Uh, There is danger not only that our trade will lose its good name, but also that the temple of the great goddess Artemis will be discredited and the goddess herself who's worshipped throughout the province of Asia and the world will be robbed of her divine majesty. When they heard this, they were furious and began shouting, Great is Artemis of Ephesians. And soon the whole city was was in an uproar. And as the story goes, Paul ends up being driven out of the city because people's love, For Artemis and fear of what was going to be lost was so great. People's love of money and their false god drove Paul out of the city. So I share this to say, in Ephesus, Artemis is central to life and was a constant issue. The people that worshipped Artemis were a constant source of conflict for Paul in the ministry that he did. So it's not a huge jump to believe that when he's then writing to Timothy, encouraging him in his leadership in Ephesus, that some of this stuff that we've seen elsewhere in the Bible influence and affect his ministry is also in the background of what Paul is writing. So let me read you a couple of descriptions. This is actually from a mentor of mine, Derek Tidble. Him and his wife Diane wrote a a commentary in the Bible Speaks Today series that's called The Message of Women. And So this is uh, some of his explanation of what's going on culturally in the background. They say, although a pluralistic city, Ephesus was dominated by the worship of the goddess Artemis, a fertility deity who provided the city with a sense of security and was crucial to its economic well being. In the Artemis cult, the female was exalted and considered superior to the male. She was also considered the protector of women when they were bearing children. The high priestess had replaced the high priest as the chief functionary of the cult by the first century. Ephesus stood as the bastion of feminine supremacy in religion. Readers in Ephesus would have been immersed in the religious environment of the city and however much they may have sought to be free from it would have been affected by it just as we are unconsciously affected by so much of our social environment today. So there's stuff going on in our understanding of Ephesus. Gnostic teaching is an issue that Paul is addressing in many of the letters. It's in Colossians, it's, it's in 1 Corinthians, a, a philosophical belief that's also in the world at that point. Gnostic teaching at Ephesus has unearthed a plethora of ideas which were likely in some earlier form to have influenced the false teaching which Paul censures. Among the extreme views were that women were responsible for the creation of men, that Eve had developed from that of a deceived sinner to that of a powerful spiritual being who could enlighten those in need of salvation. Gnostic teaching, with its denigration of the body, also encouraged an aversion to childbearing, not just childbearing, but an aversion to sex. So that's gone on. And then, if you look at the Roman culture, the Roman Empire of the first century, the emergence of what was called new women. These women threw off traditional values, rejected a secluded domestic role, spurned sexual modesty, scorned conventional dress codes, promoted marital infidelity, and sought freedom to participate in the public world of dinners and debates alongside the men. The appearance of these women greatly disturbed the social status quo and offended against ideas of respectability. From Augustus onwards, a series of laws were passed to regulate dress, discriminate against the single, penalize childless marriages and criminalize promiscuity. There's a lot going on in the background. So this is, this is a historical research. This is not biblical truth. This is people looking at the historical context, trying to understand what was going on in a place like Ephesus, what was going on in the Greco-Roman world at the time. But it's interesting when you put that in the backdrop to see how many of the issues that Paul addresses directly challenge some of the beliefs that these people who would buy into the Artemis cult or come out of the Artemis religion would be facing. I want to read the passage again with that backdrop and just think about what Paul may be addressing in the women as he says these things. Again, this is, this is an option that I want you to consider. I want the women to dress modestly with decency and propriety, adorning themselves not with elaborate hairstyles or gold or pearls or expensive clothes, but with good deeds appropriate for women who profess to worship God. A woman should learn in quietness and full submission. I do not permit a woman to teach or to assume authority over a man. She must be quiet. For Adam was born first, then Eve, and Adam was not deceived. It was the woman who was deceived and became a a sinner, But women will be saved through childbearing if they continue in faith, love, and holiness with propriety. So there are some issues going on in the culture where hypothetically, you have women who have been priestesses in the Artemis cult who are the religious leaders in the city who are coming to faith and walking into the church, and in the church are automatically assuming the air that they had before of being an authority, of being able to interpret the scriptures, of being able to teach the men what is right and wrong. You've got the issues later in the in in the book where Paul is going to address uh, some of the widows in the church who are going they are not working, they're trying to live off of the church, and, and they're going around promoting like. Uh, old wives' tales and myths and gossip and and these women in the church are causing issues by the things that they are teaching and the things that they are saying. There's an interesting piece in here um, where Paul says, "I do not permit a woman to teach or to assume authority over man." There's lots of lots and lots of debate over the wording of this sentence. Um, I do not permit a woman to teach. We've got to ask the question. Is this situational or is this universal truth? But if we jump to somewhere like Acts 18, you've got the story of these people, uh, a woman and a man, one called Priscilla and one called Aquila. Conventionally in that society and in the Greek language, you put the primary name first and it would be traditional to list the husband before the wife. But for some reason, Luke in his research and in his writing of the book of Acts lists Priscilla first. So there's a teaching team headed by Priscilla with her husband, Aquila, who are are working with Paul in the areas that he's planting churches. There's a man called Apollos, who it says is a learned man who knows all of these, He's, he's intelligent, learned, and he's misunderstanding the gospel. So Paul leaves Priscilla and Aquila to educate Apollos to teach them the right ways. And then Paul Apollos is released to do some really powerful ministry in the area where he is. So Paul didn't have a problem with Priscilla teaching. So would he later on then say no woman can preach? We've also got verses like uh, 1 Corinthians 11 um, and verse 5 and then again in verse 13 where Paul is ex- instructing the women. Again, some weird cultural things. When a woman prays or prophesies in church, she should wear a head covering. We'll leave the head covering conversation for when we get to preach through 1 Corinthians. When the women are praying and preaching. So if prayer is restricted to men, why in Corinthians is he instructing the women on how to act when they're praying? And why are women being instructed on what to do when they're prophesying if prophecy and teaching is not a part of what they're allowed to do? So Paul must be dealing with some other issue in here The word that he uses, I don't permit a woman to teach or assume authority. Paul has several words that he uses for authority in scripture. The primary one being exousia and the verbs attached to that. So whenever Paul is talking about authorities and powers, that's the word he uses. There's several others. When it comes to the word he's using here, he uses a very unique word that he doesn't use in any other context other than in this letter. So he's not talking about the type of authority that he's talking about in every other thing that he writes about authority. He's talking about something very unique in this passage. And when you look at the places this word appears outside of the Bible, most often the word is used as a negative descriptor of authority, not someone exercising positive authority over someone, but someone being in a domineering and bullying manner over other people. So many people then look at this and say, Paul could have used his normal word that would have said, I don't permit a woman to teach or to have any kind of leadership over men, but he's specifically gone for a unique word that carries negative versions of authority. So Paul potentially is saying, I don't permit a woman to come in and teach in a domineering way who has come out of this religion roundabout and is teaching the false doctrines that they're a part of. And in this culture where women are the, the, the leaders within the religion, the default would be any woman coming into the church is likely influenced by the teaching of the Artemis cult. So every woman needs to take a season to be quiet and submissive and learn to make sure that she understands the truth of the gospel before she goes out into the world to teach any of it. So is Paul forbidding women from teaching or is he addressing a particular problem in the culture that said these women are operating in a way that's co- contrary to the gospel? And so, Timothy, make sure you put some protocols in place to guard against them bringing false teaching into the church. I find that argument compelling I'm going to look at the rest of what Paul is doing in Scripture. I find it hard to believe that he would, in one letter, tell women that you can't stand in front of a room of people and teach, but in another, that you can stand up and pray and prophesy, which is a much more airy fairy, dubious space than teaching. The final piece in here, the church that Paul is writing to doesn't have the Bible. The church of today has the scriptures that are our guide and our guard for what is true and what is not. And so women teaching in a place where Uh, There's questionable theology, there's different views of how things fit together without having scripture there to be able to inform what they're doing is a much different situation to a woman in our country who has been raised in the faith, who knows the word, who has been gifted with the ability to teach, who is inhabited by the power of the Holy Spirit, then walking out into the world and using the gift that God has given them. And I went off on that way longer than than I intended to notice though the words that are being used in this passage as the uh, as the qualifiers quietness and submission faith love and holiness men pray with holy hands women learn with holiness it's the same thing paul has is just told them Um, At the beginning of the passage, talking about prayer, you're going to. I urge you to pray and pray for the people in government. Why? So that we can all live quiet and godly lives. It's the same word. He's not telling the women to live quiet, but every, all the men get to live raucous lives. In the context of instructing everybody in the way to live quietly and godly lives, he's then challenging the brokenness of the culture and calling the people back to a way of living that has humility and, and submission and good works and faith and holiness and love at the center of it. You've got this really weird part at the end I don't know if I can give you a great explanation of of what's going on here. I read commentary after commentary after commentary. I've went through the words in Greek. It's just confusing. But women will be saved through childbearing if they continue in faith, love, and holiness with propriety. Let me just give you another scripture to put some context to why this verse might be here other than the cultural stuff that we've looked at. Genesis chapter 3. After Adam and Eve have sinned, there's a curse that God speaks or an anti-blessing that is spoken over the people. And and God says, I will put enmity uh, enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head and you will strike his heel. And to the woman, he said, I'll make your pains and childbirth very severe with painful labor you will give birth to children your desire will be for your husband and he will rule over you I think it's can't be coincidental that you've got this issue with Eve she's deceived by the serpent there's a curse that she's going to desire to rule she's going to desire a husband but he's going to rule over her that there's a curse that involves childbearing it's hard to believe that in a passage that is talking about sound doctrine that is talking about um the the place that women play in the church and that starts bringing up childbirth as part of it, that the curse of Genesis three is not in the backdrop of what he's talking about. So is the word here saying that um, that a woman's going to be saved by childbirth? No, because scripture is really clear that we 're saved by faith alone. Is the passage alluding to the fact Eve was cursed, but then by the time you get to Genesis chapter 4, she is having a child that is potentially this messianic figure that she's been looking for and that salvation is going to come through the act of childbearing as one day the Messiah will come. There's something redemptive in the childbearing motif in scripture that I think here less about salvation Uh, and and a woman being saved by by giving birth, but something redemptive happening in this moment. And just to clarify and make sure that we know it's not that if you have a baby, you're saved, and if you don't have a baby, you're not saved. He qualifies what it's supposed to be, that there are these qualifiers on it. You have to continue in faith, love, and holiness. Those are the things that lead to our salvation. So let me pull up some conclusions here that we see from the passage. I think this passage this passage gets bad stick because we put it in the category of this passage is giving us the role of women in the church for all time. We remove it from the context of what Paul is writing. Paul is explaining how this church is supposed to function and instructing Timothy on what functioning in this context should look like. So I don't want to lose the bigger conclusions that are in here and the bigger messages he's given around whether a a woman can have authority in the church or not. So here's the conclusions, right, that are for all of us, whether he's addressing the man or the woman. He is instructing us in 1 Timothy chapter 2 that men and women in the church must prioritize prayer. It's the core of how we're called to live with Jesus and that the attitude that we walk in as we come into prayer and worship matters in how our prayers and our worship are received by God. So holy hands, dealing with our anger and dealing with our disputes. Paul is helping people to understand that we have to put more attention on our heart and our resulting behavior than on our outward appearance. In their culture, women clearly with the Artemis cult, they they beautified themselves, they had a particular way of dressing, Uh, there was issues with wealth disparity like you have today and people uh, pampered themselves and dressed ostentatiously in order to promote their wealth and it's going to come up at the end of the book of Timothy where he's going to start addressing some of the rich and poor and the issues that exist there within the context. But we live in a day and an age where sometimes, well, well, I know women, there are lots of pressures on how you appear and how you look. And from the women I'm close to, I hear that most of that pressure comes from the other women, not from the men. Women have expectations that your hair is done and that you're wearing the latest fashion. The men don't care, right, as much. Um, But we live in a day and age where men can be just as caught up in appearance And just as busy trying to rock the latest fashion and look the right way and show off that we're culturally relevant as as, as women would be. So all of us, stop being caught up in the, the patterns of the world, the fashion of the world. Stop trying to present yourself the right way by the things that you wear instead focus on having a humble and quiet heart and living good works in the world that present to the church to the world around us the message of the gospel and the beauty of Jesus eve may have been the one who was deceived first adam is the one that scripture holds accountable for the fall of man so it's not just eve that was deceived adam was also deceived men and women we are a uh, able to be deceived. If we do not know this book, we are more easily deceived by the false teachings that are out there in the world. If we do not spend our time studying this book, we will happily spend our time buying into the conspiracy theories that the world around us wants to believe that 1 Timothy 1 tells us to run from. And lastly, all of us It's not just women that are to pursue faith, love, and holiness displayed in good works. All of us are to pursue faith, love, and holiness displayed in good works. So what happens in this passage is Paul tells the men to pray and then tells the women to watch what they're wearing and have the right attitude when they're learning. Paul is addressing two issues, one that the men have and one that the women have that are stopping them from pursuing love faith and holiness in a way that presents good works to the world round about them so that Jesus can be known. So our job is not to sit here and figure out should a woman speak today or not. Our job is to look at ourselves and say, am I living in quiet submission? Am I dealing with my anger and my divisiveness? Am I focused more on the quality of my heart or on my external behavior? Am I knowing the word and guarding against all the deception that the world is feeding us? And am I living all of that out in a way that points people to Jesus? I don't believe Paul was telling the women that they can't teach. I don't believe Paul was telling women that they should be quiet in church. The word quiet actually means calm and restful, not silent uh, in the Greek. And I believe in in a world and in a history in the church where women have been very oppressed and men in the church have done horrible things to women and have used the scriptures to tear women down. It is our job as men in the church to look at the women around us and build them up and elevate them and promote them and allow them to use the gifts that God's given them so that we can all become the kind of people that God is calling us to be. So let's prioritize prayer. Let's put more attention on our heart and our behavior than the things that look good. Let's guard against the deceptions that can easily steep in. And let's pursue faith, love, and holiness that outworks into good works in the world. Let me pray. God, the reality is it doesn't matter what passage we come to, And how complicated the Greek is, or how confusing the wording is, the end of the day, the conclusion is the same. We're supposed to pursue you. We're supposed to become people of prayer. We're supposed to steep in your word. We're supposed to be conformed to the image of Jesus. And then we're supposed to take that out into the world, doing our best to remove anything that hinders the gospel in our lives and anything that hinders our witness and to be building one another up into fullness and wholeness in Jesus. So God, may we be a church where all of us prioritize prayer. But God, may the men of our church lead in prayer with hands, holy hands with their anger and their disputes. God, may all of us care more about our heart than about the trappings of the world and how good we look to the person next to us. And yeah, God, may the women in our church, as they are, continue in modesty uh, as as they model you to the world. And then God, may all of us learn humbly in submission to you over all things, empowered by your spirit and the things that you call us to. And may we find for each person in the church the best use of the gifts that they have that will drive all of us closer to Jesus so that we can bring the world into deeper intimacy with you. Um, So God, give us humility as we come to the text. Give us gracious hearts with one another. Uh, Give us kindness towards the people that see things differently. And may we stand united in Jesus, reflecting him to the world. In whose name we pray, amen.